Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is senior mortgage reporter Bill Conroy to talk about stress in the secondary market and how we're seeing that play out among various lenders. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, glad to be back. I think it's been a little bit. It has, and I'm so glad to have you on because you have been doing some great reporting, and I want our audience to to get to hear you from you specifically about those. One, the first story I'd like to ask you about is something that you wrote about um, the mortgage market is right sizing. Um, and when will we see a you know normalcy return? And love to ask you about that, especially because we've written a lot about what this looks like for the primary market. But you know, you go in here, you talk to some sources from what's the effect on the secondary market, and I would love to uh, dive into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, again, I preface all this in, in, in the fact that I'm not the expert. This is what I get from from talking to sources who who are experts. And you know, right now, as of Today, still, uh, the securitization market is 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 way down, and on the private label side, it's it's basically I you know looking at the numbers, basically stalled across the major buckets, which you know are uh, investor type, uh, prime and non prime, uh, or non QM, it's called, or expanded credit. Um, there's just nothing moving through them, and people are you know kind of holding back, and that's because the numbers don't work, right? The, they still don't work in terms of um, you know the Fed is pulling back, continuing to pull back from buying MBS, or, and and you know that creates more supply and puts pricing you know creates pricing pressures. Plus the the interest rate, the pricing environment doesn't work, um, you know, especially when rates were continuing to go up. Every time you'd issue a bond, it was underwater, right? You'd, I mean, the investors wanted a higher price for it because they knew the what the environment they could get about a better, um, uh, higher price or higher rate bond, you know, in a month, right? So it, it, that that's been a problem. Now we'll see. We'll see just because we just you know arguably recently have seen rates start to moderate to to drop a little bit in the thirty year mark, even as the Fed is pumping up interest rates uh, or their benchmark rate. They're not directly linked, but there's there's you know things that that happen in the in the market that um, you know can can cause some variance between the two the spreads on those two obviously and and right right now it looks good right I mean we're starting to trail down and if you talk to you know folks in the market they think you know we could end next year you know in the low fives um, if it continues on on the and and I, that's probably you know, those forecasts have been fairly consistent. But the other part of that, at least for the the secondary market, is um, you know, there's there's kind of always a lag time between when rates drop and when recovery sets in and how long that lag time is, you know, a you know, is anyone's guess right now. I mean, if you look at the Fed history, according to one of the the, the sources I talked to, there's like a four to five month when when the Fed rates peak and they're still talking about raising them into next year. Even after they peak, there's a four to five month delay before they start lowering the benchmark rate, which is kind of then really start to open things up. But, you know, that wouldn't happen until by this account, what, you know, you're talking uh, sometime in the summer at the best case scenario. And then, you know, 
by the time that filters into the market, it, it's like not necessarily going to pick us up that much next year. That's kind of the projection. Conservative, right? I mean, um, you know, things things can happen, things can change. But the biggest driver, the, the reality of the biggest driver here is, you know, originations are just down. And until they pick up, there's nothing to securitize, right? I mean, that's that's what <laughs> that's the the collateral for that market. Um, so, in the primary market, drives the secondary market, and you know, the secondary market makes it possible for that money to be recycled to keep lenders, you know, making loans in the primary market. So it's it's all connected. Um, and I don't know which one's going to drive which in the recovery this time, but my bet would be that originations are what are, you know, and that could be, ref, you know, a refi, uh, mini refi boom or whatever. As, as soon as re- originations really start to drive upward, um, then then we'll, we'll see things improve, right? We, we definitely will. I don't know what level they'll get at, but they, you know, from the from the bottom now up, you know, that would be good. But the other thing that's going on in the market, again, from sources I talk to, is um, there's been and likely to be a, a drift downward in housing values, right? Um, and we're really giving back some of the appreciation. I know I'm in Seattle, and I, I'll tell you my home is down 9%, right, based on estimates, right? But I think I had 40% appreciation, so I'm not really upset. Wow. I mean, this market was crazy, right? It, it, it was. I mean, that's from the time I bought it to now, like five years. But it's it, it's it's a it's a an unreal amount of appreciation. So, uh, giving some of that back is not breaking the bank. But there's other markets where, or depending where you bought, if you bought at the peak of the market, now that's that's not good, right? That's a you're down. Like if you bought yes, uh, you know, uh, earlier this year or whatever, and you, at the top of the market in Seattle. 10%, 9%, whatever it is, that, that's a, you know, that and that would probably make, uh, you know, various refinancing scenarios not work out. So there's going to be some of that going on too, even if they, they, we're not going to have a crash like we did, you know, 15 years ago by any means. No one's predicting that. But there's going to be these little tweaks, these little variables in the market that are really hard to predict. And they're going to be regionalized. You know, some areas aren't going to see that. You know, I think the high... The markets that saw these, you know, on the West Coast and, you know, um, different, I guess, parts of the, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, where the- Austin is one that, you know, saw saw a a big run up and now is cooling. I still don't know that it's like dropping a lot, but it's at least cooling. So Mm -hmm. you do see those pandemic era, you know, areas, uh, metros that really saw a lot of activity then. Those are the ones that are feeling the most pain now, but pain is relative. Yeah, right? no, like exactly said. right. Like in my case, it's not really pain. It's like, oh, yeah, I thought it was funny money to begin with, <laughs> much of it. Um, <laughs> but for those, yeah, for and and that's where the where the weak points are is the people that bought at the top of the market, the ones that right now, if they can hang on, they'll be fine because eventually it comes back. It always has. Um, but but there's going to be a period where those folks, especially if they bought and they you know and are their budgets are really tight, and that's probably driving down more into the into the FHA stuff than than necessarily the the, the, the Fannie Freddie stuff, where you know the, the buyers are probably have a little bit more in terms of resources to ride something out like this. You know, I wanted to go back to the securitization part um, because you talked to uh, Kroll Bond Rating mm-hmm. uh, Agency was one of the ones that you talked to, of course, um, one of the big ones. And, you know, they were they were talking about really it's like a tale of of 
two different quarters or, you know, over this last year, it, we still had a, a, the year started out so impressive. And then Q4 is going to end up being, you know, the lowest RMBS securitization volume, you know, since like 2016. So it's just so interesting. If you look at the stats from the first half of the year and just like, you know, obviously mortgages too, but especially in the securitization, it was going to be a banner year. Yeah. It, and a lot of that was like securitizing loans because they're seasoning at three three months, you know, let's say on average. So a lot of the loans at the beginning of this year were carryover from the boom year, you know, refi years, 221. It was just huge volume. And that was just pushing through the pipelines until the Fed you know, stepped in and turned off the spigot. And you see that by the, yeah, by the second half of the year, um, I just got a, a report. I'm working on another story and it's like there were no jumbo securitizations. Like those were huge at the beginning of the year, and and it's just and the, it's just all shut. Yeah, and and I talked to one lender in the story, uh, Thomas Union. You know, they were at Accelerate. They were planning their first securitization. They're a non QM lender, and they they postponed it because it, it, the market isn't you know right for it. They, you know, you don't want to go out there and get clobbered. So, and and I think that's also getting back to some of the problems lenders are facing is these liquidity pipelines. If you can't sell loans on the whole loan market, and right now a lot of their loans that were made at higher rates or at lower rates, excuse me, uh, in this environment are underwater. You're gonna, you know, they're gonna you're gonna sell them under par. If you can't securitize them, and you got to carry them on, on your books, then right. And if you can, and then you're you're supporting them with warehouse lines, maybe I, you know, or they're you know you got to mark to market on your on your books anyway, and it's a paper loss, so it's not. It, it's a tough market, and that's why you're seeing a lot of lenders struggle. Um, and the MSRs have kind of bailed out at least some of the bigger ones. But when you dig down in the market, it's a big market, and I, I think. You know, a lot of the, you know, maybe in rural America, we have a lot of these smaller towns that have somebody that does mortgage lending and they're, you know, they're, they're not big players by any means, 250 million in, in, in originations or less, uh, even maybe crawling up toward the 500. Those are the ones that get that. Those are the ones and they're hidden. You know, they're the ones that are, they're not making, you know, the big headlines because, you know, but that, that's where the, where the pain is right now, for sure. I think it's interesting. Um, you quote Thomas Yoon, the president and CEO of Accelerate Capital, right? And he said, in the worst case scenario, some lenders may securitize to get the assets off their balance sheet. You know, even if they're doing, even if they're losing money doing it. Well, yeah, if they need the cash and, and to, to make things going, yeah, and then they they take a loss, and then at least they they have the cash to make whatever their cash needs are. That that's. Yeah, that's the way I understood that. Um, but it's not an ideal situation right. by any means. Um, and you know, you're you're kind of biding time and hoping that you know you the market will recover enough that you can either recoup those losses or, or you know, you have if you were I guess I don't want to say smart, but that's probably a good word, uh, prudent. Um, and and during the boom years, had you know set aside loan loss reserves and are adequately reserved and and have some some uh, you know cushion you know, then you're all right, right? You can ride this out maybe, right? Or if you're a really huge player and, you, and you've got, uh, you know, uh, different liquidity outlets and access to warehouse lines that aren't killing you um, with interest rates. But even there, you know, the warehouse lenders, you know, it, it, their rates are going up, right? And their haircuts and so forth 
because if your loans are under par, if they, you know, if, if they had advanced 85%, now your loans are worth 75% on par, you know, that's a problem. So you've got all these hidden pressures. They're like, I think of it more like you've got this huge like piping system and there's leaky pipes all over. You're just hoping it doesn't lead to a catastrophic failure. You're constantly running around as a plumber in this business trying to plug the leaks. Um, and, you know, is it, hoping, you know, whatever's causing the pressure, the extra pressure is, is, is relieved soon. Um, you can get back to some normalcy. Yeah, I suppose in the secondary market, I'm, I'm seeing more, you know, stress. There's signs of recovery in the primary market that are hopeful. I think next year is going to be a tough year, though. Uh, I I think we're kidding ourselves if we if we if we if if we don't see it that way. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be some bright spots, and it doesn't mean we're not going to start to see some recovery and and some you know some uh, you know uh, at least a ray the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Put it that way. I think is is going to be there next year, but it's probably toward the end of next year. You know, you end that story with, um, you know, the comments from some folks who do see at least some silver linings here, right? So one of them was a co-founder and CEO of a Seattle-based fintech. Do you say Orson? Or it's yeah, O-R-S-N, exactly. Orson? Okay. Yeah. And, you know, what does he look at? I mean, because I really felt like his take there was looking a little bit longer term and saying, you know, anytime you have this kind of hit to a certain part of the market, it gets more efficient. And then on the other side, there's, you know, better pricing. I don't know. What did, what was your take from what he said? Well, I think what he's saying is that the market eventually, you know, will, will kind of settle to where it's supposed to be. And that, you know, once that happens, the, the market will start being a little more efficient, right? Even if it's at smaller volume. Um, and I think that's, that's where he's going, he was going with that, that, you know, he's talking about, you know, the, the issuance is slow to recover, um, you know, due to the, you know, tightening lending standards in a possible recession next year, uh, in unemployment. But, you know, he said that recession could bode well for the MBS market in next year. Um, you know, because, you know, if there are fewer, quality loan pools to choose from, then, you know, sellers are going to be able to command a higher price. So there's still, I mean, the bond market is weird that way. I mean, it's, it's supply and demand. So if, you know, if the Fed is pulling back and there's, there's all this supply of MBS out there that that's, you know, lowering, you know, putting pressure, downward pressure on bond prices. Once there's not as much MBS out there, the opposite starts to happen. So, you know, that, that, makes the bonds a little more valuable, especially if they're quality loans, which they have been and probably will continue to be now, especially in this environment. So I don't know that that helps the guy in the street, that, you know, <laughs> but it might help the investor. Right. <laughs> it might help with those lenders that, that can then use that more frequently as a liquidity channel. So I guess in a way that you know, gets the gets the, the 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 cash working again to make more loans, and um, and then you know if the market expands, then everything kind of grows, you know, in unison. So, but it's going to happen. I mean, this is a cycle, and people that have you know that are uh, ancient like me, even if I'm not you know an expert, <laughs> I've been through these cycles you know before. I'm old enough to remember the housing market cycles, you know, like our economy, and and we're in a down cycle, and it's always hard to predict, you know, uh, when we when we're going to resurface, but it's going to happen. Um, and you know, you just gotta, you know, 
those that you know have saved up enough acorns to ride out this this gloomy winter uh, will come out the other end uh, better positioned and probably with more market share. Yeah, we're already seeing that for sure. I mean, you know, you mentioned liquidity, um, and that's really one of the one of the factors in the next story I want to talk to you about, which was reverse mortgage funding, um, filing Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. You worked on that with Chris Clow, and you know, liquidity was a big part of why that reverse mortgage lender, which was the fifth largest in the country, um, you know, it's a small space, so fifth largest, there's still still a big uh, player there in that space. And liquidity crisis was a big part of that. Can you tell us what you found there? Well, I mean, they, they got hit on three fronts. They first, it was um, that their um, originations were like everyone's, you know, started to bottom out. Um, and then they had, uh, you know, securitization issues. They couldn't really use those channels, just like, you know, that was a problem in general. But the one that really appears to have done them in is, is and it's a kind of a, a technical thing, but uh, and it has to do with their servicing side. And they, they had a huge, they, you know, I think one, if not the largest, one of the largest servicers in the reverse space. And I'll preface this by saying I have not covered the reverse mortgage market um, you know, a lot. I've, I'm familiar with it. I know how, to, how how it works, but it's it's not the area that I, I focus on exclusively. But in this case, um, you know, it, it there's a similar program in in uh, the forward market called you know early buyout where you can buy loans out and if you you know non-performing out of genie pools and if you can get them to perform i think it's you know over three months or whatever you can sell them back into the pools and a lot of times at a profit well this is kind of a version of that but they have a rule apparently with the reverse which i didn't know about until i read the the court papers that once the mortgages reach 98 percent, get to 98 percent of what's the now, these are in Heckums guaranteed by FHA. Once that, whatever the guarantee amount is that uh, FHA has for those loans, once the draw on the reverse mortgages reaches 98% of that, the lender has to buy it, you know, uh, buy the loan out, continue servicing it, and wait for FHA to reimburse them from the, from their insurance, and then FHA takes the loan. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's like three months for 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 like a they call them active buyouts where it's not someone didn't die or something where it's a case where someone died and you got to deal with the foreclosure or there's other conditions whatever it can take a year it can take longer well they got hit with a ton of these buyouts um in 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 on an escalating basis i am looking for the figure here but it got into the billions of dollars they were estimating that at the end of october rm had some 21.4 billion of issued outstanding Heck, well, excuse me, the, the bio part was uh, um, RMF, you know, forecasted that it, that it would incur about $2.1 in buyout obligations over the next 12 months and a total of $13.8 billion over the next seven years. Well, they have to carry these loans, wait for the money to get back. Well, they're carrying them with warehouse lines, right? That's how they're financing them. They don't get reimbursed for the finance costs. Well, that, they they were they ended up with negative carry. They were the 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 loans on average were five point four two percent, you know, in that range. Seventy seven percent were adjustable at five point four two percent, and the fixed were at five. This is for a slice of their heckums to give an example. But the warehouse lines are at six to seven point one five percent. So they they were losing. They're bleeding cash, you know, immensely. Um, had no outlets to, to securitize this stuff, you know, um, and, you know, they were 
forced to carry it because you know until they got the money back and it was it, it was taking too long for the money to get back to to make them whole uh, and they you know the warehouse lines started collapsing they were violating their covenants and and you know one pulled a plug the next one pulled a plug. it was like a cascading event and that's what did them under is their warehouse lines collapsed because of the um, and they were working with Ginny to get extensions which Ginny gave them extensions but it didn't really matter because they were carrying these these loans <laughs> they were violating Ginny's covenants and Ginny was giving them extensions but the warehouse lines were you know gave up they they just didn't I I I suspect they they didn't want to take the risk and start a pulled a plug and that that forced them into bankruptcy fr- frankly that's what happened so um yeah tough it, 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 you wouldn't you wouldn't know it from the outside i mean you know cuz it was this was over the course of several months they were trying to negotiate deals to to get out from under it, even a sales deal, but nothing, no one wanted to bite. And yeah, they had no, they had no option, but they filed chapter 11 and they're backed by huge, you know, um, investment fund, Starwood and Starwood sucked 50 million into them. And they still sunk 30, 13 million more in after for debtor and possession financing and their servicer line of credit is, is, you know, actually extended a big, that are in possession financing line in, in bankruptcy too. So, you know, uh, there was a lot of money in, you know, at some point I'm sure they thought we're sitting getting good money in, you know, into, into a bad situation and that it's, we can't save them. You know? And that's what happened. How many others, I think this is somewhat unique because they, you know, uh, RMF did buy up a lot of servicing portfolios and maybe ended up with, you know, a bad balance of loans that way that contributed to this. Um, and so, you know, someone had a, a, a good quote. Now admit this was probably Chris's report. It was Chris's reporting. Everyone else stopped at the, at the stoplight and RMF just buzzed right through it. <laughs> that's, that's what happened. Uh, you know, in short. I, I think this is, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to do a d- deep dive in the story. So we did, you know, we did the initial reporting and, you know, talking about how they did this. But then, you know, we wanted you and Chris to go deeper because it's like, first of all, how did this happen, <laughs> right? As a as a cautionary tale to others or just to look at it. And it was curious to us that they did have this, you know, large background in Starwood. And it's like, so how how is it that this happened despite that? Because, you know, we do have... Other lenders are out there that don't have that backstop. So I, I think it's a really interesting story and would tell all our listeners to go read it on um, Reverse Mortgage Daily, which is Inside the Collapse of RMF, America's Fifth Largest Reverse Mortgage Lender, because there's a ton of detail in there that I think is interesting to anyone in the business and, and looking at like what they did how they how they paddled like crazy trying to to fix it and to your point i mean it just it collapsed at the end with the with the liquidity from the warehouse lines so really interesting story bill great job on that what do you have uh, coming next well i guess a story that's publishing today i just was working with the editor on it and he said it's probably ready to go in, um, this morning hopefully the long short is it's on uh, uh the agent you know fanny and freddie um have rep and warranties on every loan they buy. And they, because of all the tons of loans that were made in 20 and 221, they're, you know, they're only now getting around to some, some of the, uh, 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 you know, look, examining those loans for rep and warranties violations. And then if they find them, they gets, you know, sent back to the lender and the lender has to rebuy them at the original 
you know, cost, whatever. It's a $500,000 loan. You know, they got to lay out the money for that to repurchase if they, if they can't, you know, appeal and get, get, you know, uh, find a way out of it. And the problem there is that uh, once you bought you, you know, those loans are underwater now. They're three, three and a half percent loans in the, in a six to seven percent market. They're worth 75 to 80 cents on the dollar. So these are, these, there's, you know, you can go read the story. I don't want to give it all away, but there's a huge volume of loan repurchases coming back both from Fannie, Fannie and Freddie. Um, not, uh, you know, how many of them actually end up to, to be, you know, repurchased will depend on, you know, whether lenders can stave some of that off, but most of it is probably going to have to be repurchased. Um, that's what happens every year. And this, this year it's even more because it's a huge volume because of the, the, the boom years. And that's going to impact, you know, it's not going to be an industry like threat in any sense, but it's, you know, these loans, if you got, if you think of yourself as a small lender, 250, 300 million in, in uh, originations, and suddenly you've got, you know, even two or three loans, uh, you know, at, you know, five, six hundred thousand dollars, you got to buy back, and they're only, you know, you're, you're taking a pretty big hit that's, and you're already struggling. It's it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts, and this is definitely another slice coming for the for a lot of lenders out there. Well, and I think it's another part of the hangover from that kind of incredible volume year, right? And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely. That you're not thinking about when when you know you're just throwing bodies at the problem and trying to get all those loans done, and then you know this is just uh, inevitable, as you said, from the amount of loans. But also, I mean, we saw some. Lenders that, you know, it was it was like, well, how are they doing these loans so fast? And what kind of precautions are they taking um, in, in these kind of compliance matters? So it's going to be interesting yeah. to see. Yeah. And, and, and apparently the big, you know, it's not the only one, but the big one was DTI, debt to income ratios, and not necessarily by a lot. You know, you know, it's not like they were super off, but they're off and that's a violation. And so, you know, and so the loans are still good quality. And, you know, if you can hold them. You know, they're probably, you know, it, but, you know, you're not in a position to hold them in most cases as a smaller lender, especially in the non-bank where your uh, environment where you're working on warehouse lines, which is the banks are struggling a little in this environment, too. And they're the ones providing warehouse lines. So it's all it is all kind of a perfect storm. But again, you know, storms pass and then we get, you know, you know, these brilliantly sunny skies again. It, it always works. And we forget the storm after a while. Maybe. I love the optimism. And it's yeah. true, right? You and I, you know, like you said, we've been through some cycles and it is good to remember this is a tough winter. We've, you've written about that. You know, we've had other stories on that, but you know, it is going to get better at some point, but you do feel for the people in the middle of it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There's a lot of, you know, jobs and people, you know, that start companies that have dreams and yeah, it's, it it's hard, you know, but it's, Frankly, how the economy works, um, you know, in, in, um, you know, the, the one I always remember that, the, that, that, uh, when, and it's not related to housing necessarily, but when I covered, um, uh, it was like the real estate development side, some of these guys go bankrupt two and three times, but then they finally hit it big, right? They, they, they get a project that works and they're like set for life. So, um, that's kind of how the American <laughs> enterprise system works. I think, you know, there's a lot of second chances. It's a lot of pain when you're, when you're down, but the wheel eventually comes back up. You know? So you got to hang on. It does. Well, Bill, thanks so much for, um, joining me today and really talking through these stories that are 
uh, really incredible features. That's what you're doing for us now. You're really focused on the uh, longer form deep dive features into different parts of the uh, um, housing economy. We love it. And um, thanks for being on. Yeah, it's fun. Good talking to you guys. have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer form digital content, the Housing Wire magazine, member exclusive rates to in-person events like Housing Wire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.